Hello, I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, editor of The Legacy of John Williams. Welcome to a new episode of our Legacy Conversations, a series of in-depth talks with prominent figures of the film and music industry about the legacy of John Williams. My guest today is Joe Kramer. based in Los Angeles, who wrote acclaimed scores for such films as The Way of the Gun, Jack Reacher starring Tom Cruise, and the mega-hit Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. independent movie The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot, starring Sam Elliott. Joe Kramer is a great connoisseur of John Williams' music, which inspired him to become a film composer himself. wide-ranging interview, we talk about Joe's career, his own study path, his work on the Mission Impossible film, and why John Williams is still one of Joe's main inspiration, both as a composer and as a professional of the film music industry. Thank you very much for being with me today. Uh, one of the key elements of this website is to celebrate how the music of John Williams inspired generations of people to pursue a career as film composers, and you're essentially one of them. So I'd like to start our conversation talking about your study path, and when did you start studying music professionally? Sure. Well, um, I grew up in a musical family. My father was an amateur musician. He had 11 brothers and sisters. And so between them, they would, you know, have big family sing-alongs on Saturday nights and stuff like that. And so my uncle played the drums, another uncle played the bass. And so my dad and his brothers had like a wedding band and they would play weddings and they were writing their own songs and trying to make records at home in the 60s and 70s using reel-to-reel stereo tape recorders that could record twin track left channel only right channel only and they could have some sort of rudimentary kind of overdubbing so i had um and, you know this experience as a little kid of thinking everybody wrote songs and recorded their own music it didn't occur to me that that was something unusual that my dad you know did that other other kids dads didn't do they were big beatles fans and classical music. My dad was into the Beatles and classical music, Tchaikovsky and the, the romantic composers. When I was, let's say, probably six is when Star Wars came out and it kind of 
you know, I've said it before in different interviews, it sort of melted my brain, you know, it did some, it, I was the, I was in that perfect age that that movie was made for in terms of the film itself, but also the music really, I really connected with the music and I can't tell you why. I mean, I, I mean, obviously as an adult, I can say, well, it's really good. But then a year or so later, Superman came out and that again, just sort of knocked me off my feet. And so around that time, I went to the record store and the first two albums I bought were Superman the Movie and Magical Mystery Tour by the Beatles. And then I also, somewhere in that very early on, got the Nutcracker by Tchaikovsky. So I was sort of, my dad's tastes were trickling down on me. And it's funny because I was thinking the other day, I always say, well, you know, the first two albums I got were Magical Mystery Tour and, and Superman the Movie. One was a film score and one was a rock record. But then I remembered, actually, Magical Mystery Tour was kind of a soundtrack album, too, because it was a movie that the Beatles made. I guess film music has been there from the very beginning for me in terms of the music I've listened to for fun. And it's probably not a coincidence that George Martin's contributions to Magical Mystery Tour were very orchestral with All You Need Is Love, um, Strawberry Fields Forever, I Am The Walrus, Penny Lane, and Magical Mystery Tour, the song. You know, those four or five songs, they have a very strong orchestral element to them that probably, you know, informed me as a child without even realizing it. Absolutely. So then when I was in high school, junior high, I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, and one of my classmates was, I was in seventh grade, so I was about, it was like 83, so I was about 12, and one of my classmates was a senior, so he would have been about 18, and he made movies on Super 8, which Mm. was, you know, pre-camcorder, pre-VHS. Yes, my father had a a Super 8 uh, camera, which he, he used for for our own home movies. Exactly. And this had this could do sound. And so my friend Scott Storm would make films. He'd write and direct feature-length films on Super 8. And he asked me to act in one. And it was about ninth grade by the time it came together. So I was about 15. He cast me in the film. And because I had this background in music and this interest in film music, because of my, you know, uh, fandom for John Williams, I uh, asked him, you know, I had this home studio, maybe I could do some music for your movie. And Scott had never considered having original music in a movie he made before. So this was a whole new dimension of filmmaking for him. And he was totally excited by the prospect. And so at 15, I was acting in a movie and, and then writing the score, mm. which, you know, is not, again, not the most usual upbringing for people who aren't in the business you know i wasn't in the business this is the middle of the woods in new york state i I, no connection to hollywood yeah it Um, wasn't mid 80s right mid 80s yes 85 86 87 i made i worked on three feature-length films with scott in the 80s one in 86 one in 87 one in 88 we also worked on a bunch of short films because he was also at the same time uh, after we made the first film, he enrolled at NYU School of Animation and was making animated films at NYU. He, somewhere in there, too, had done a semester or a year at School of Visual Arts in New York, and he met a filmmaker from New Jersey. Uh, and through that filmmaker, I met a writer named uh, Christopher McQuarrie, 
who yeah. ended up later on being kind of um, instrumental in helping me get some opportunities to showcase what I do. That's sort of the, uh, you know, the nutshell. And then you started to, to study music professionally later. Yes. Yeah, so then my senior year in high school, because I had been doing acting, I had been doing music, I had been interested in writing and directing movies. But music was always sort of the one thing that I could do that no one else could do in my circle of friends, you know? I seemed to be able to stand out musically more than I did as an actor or a writer or a filmmaker. And so I decided to go to Berklee College of Music in Boston. And I went there with this sort of vague notion that they had recording studios and I might be able to record some demos while I was there. Um, again, you know, you have to think back to 1989, I had a four track cassette deck and that was it. I mean, there was no pro tools yet. There were no computer based recording systems. So the ability to make a decent sounding recording at home was really tough. And now of course you can do it on your phone, but back then it was really challenging. So the lure of a 24 track recording studio at this school was really attractive to me. And when I got there, I discovered they had a film music program and along the way realized that I could probably get more out of my time studying film music as sort of my major mm. and then having an informal minor in songwriting and recording. And so I studied all those things, but my focus really became film music. And I discovered that there was a whole craft behind scoring films, you know, working in Super 8 with a four track, there was no way to synchronize the music to the picture ahead of time. And I had no education in counting frames or timing things out. There was no way to do streamers and punches. There was no way to really do a click track, at least that I knew of. And so the ability to learn all these skills at Berkeley, as well as conducting and orchestration and arranging was really attractive. And I decided to sort of buckle down and brush up on those things and, and really try to master those skills as much as I could at the age of, you know, 22, 21. And at the same time, my friends in LA, McQuarrie and his crew were making strides as filmmakers with a film called Public Access and then a film that Chris wrote called uh, The Usual Suspects. Yeah. And so when Berkeley ended, I moved to LA And a classmate of mine from Berkeley was already living in L.A. And she got me a job working in sound. I was her assistant. She trained me and then I would help her out. She would work days and I would work nights. And so I had an ability to make money that gave me sort of the freedom to do student films and short films and work on stuff as a musician without having to worry about making a living. And uh, spend a lot of time with Macquarie and the gang um, on the set of Usual Suspects, watching the filming, and just, yeah, that, you know, building relationships in Hollywood. Yeah, which is a fundamental so, aspect, I guess, to, to make a career. It really is. I mean, if you take Steven Spielberg out of John Williams' biography, you know, you lose, not only do you lose Jaws and Close Encounters and Raiders and Schindler and E.T., but, you know, he never meets George Lucas. If he doesn't do Jaws and Star Wars, he probably doesn't do Superman. It's an entirely different career. Absolutely, yes. And uh, uh, while you were in Boston, actually, because I think there is a nice John Williams connection, 
I mean, yeah. he, he was in Boston all, all the time in those years, late 80s, early 90s. Yep. And uh, also the Berkeley College of Music is quite renowned because it's also the school where, I guess, Alan Silvestri mm -hmm. studied and even, I guess, our show. So you had an interest in movies and film music, but at the same time you were... Uh, looking at you know the the composer you liked maybe like John Williams and what they were doing and so what was the impact that the music of John made to you while you were studying? Right, you know, well the Symphony Hall was right down the street from Berkeley, so we would go down and get student rush tickets and see Pops concerts with John Williams conducting, and once in a while you know I'd sort of hang out at the corner and see him come out of the rehearsal door and get right into his limo. They did an open house fundraiser, sort of open house at Symphony Hall in 1991. And I got to meet him then. That was the first time I got to meet him, which was, you know, as a young student was had some meaning to me. Yeah. A meaningful encounter. And then at the same time, getting into his music and studying it. It's an interesting thing when you think about the creative process. And I think about this with John Williams and I think about it with the Beatles and, and also Brian Wilson, who I'm also a fan yeah. of that, for example, you know, um, Star Wars is, a, is an iconic theme, but there was a point in time where that didn't exist. And then there was a moment where it suddenly did, where John Williams went through a creative process and arrived at that destination, which was the theme to Star Wars. Um, I don't know specifically what the process was for that creative journey for him, but The fact that you could just sort of sit down and work at it until it's right was a was something that was really drilled into me at Berkeley. That you know, keep revising, keep updating. It's a craft. If you don't sit around and wait for the muse to drop an idea in your lap, you sit there and you work at it. And he talks about that. John Williams talks about that in. There's that there's a great BBC documentary from 1980 where he says some days he sits there with his head in his hands and worries, will it ever come? And then other days it just seems to flow out of it. We had, I think, one hour and 47 minutes of orchestral music to compose, orchestrate and copy, prepare for the orchestra sessions. Sometimes it comes very quickly and there's a nice flow, and other times I hold my head in my hand and think, uh, is it ever going to come? I guess you want to stand under the right kind of rays from heaven or hope that the muses will not desert us. There's some interesting history about the creation of the theme to Close Encounters that he's talked about on Laserdiscs and DVDs. And also, I think Julia Phillips talks about it in her book, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, where, you know, Williams was really feeling like it needed seven notes. And Spielberg wanted five. And John was like, but five isn't a melody. And Spielberg, I don't want a melody. I want a doorbell. You know, Williams then said, okay, five notes. And he went to a computer expert at UCLA, I believe. And... They printed out a list of all the possible combinations or, you know, a gazillion combinations. And he went through and just played them all on the piano and circled the ones he liked. The one they ended up with, in a weird way, was sort of nobody's favorite, but it was the one everybody kept going back to. If mm -hmm. I'm remembering the Julia Phillips book correctly, it was sort of like the one they all settled on. And it was a, very much a process of chiseling away 
at this giant list. You know, if you could liken it to sculpture, that this list was a big block of marble, and they chiseled away at the list until they got to the statue. And then also, you know, seeing video of him, seeing that documentary of him conducting the LSO while they recorded Empire Strikes Back and learning about timing notes and cue sheets and streamers and punches and click tracks and beat sync logs and click books. And there was an excellent book called On the Track by Fred Carlin that we all read and studied, learning about David Shire. I'd always loved all the president's men, but I didn't know a lot about the composer and then at Berkeley, you know, I was really turned on to taking a Pelham 123, wow. All the President's Men, and uh, The Conversation was the other one, yeah. you know. That, that this is a craft, and it's something that you work at the way soccer player works at running up and down the field and kicking the ball, you know, and a goalie works at catching kicks, you know. You work at it every day, and you just try to get better every day. And the, 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 I guess the thing that sticks with me more than anything is John Williams has said this on a number of occasions— which is that he never, he doesn't think about Oscars. He doesn't think about being famous. He sits down and does his two minutes a day. Yeah. And he does the best two minutes he can do every day. And he reads and he studies the repertoire of, you know, I was just reading an interview with him, oh, like a week ago where he was talking about, he still sits down and just reads the Beethoven symphonies. Yeah. There's not a lot of composers who are working in films today who even understand the Beethoven symphonies, let alone sit down and read them for fun. Yeah. And it's not a big secret that I'm really frustrated with the sort of current state of film music, you know? It's an art form that's capable of so much intellectual and artistic expression. And in my opinion, it's been severely dumbed down to like three-chord rock performed by a symphony orchestra. And I find that really frustrating. Yeah, the fact that uh, John Williams still writes, uh, you know, incredibly complex, um, you know, it's it's polyphonic music. I was talking with David Newman, and he, he was talking about this. I mean, he writes polyphonic music in an environment where today is mostly homophonic music. So Yeah, that's I, a good way to put it. Yeah, and uh, he also developed this sophisticated sense of rhythm, tempo, and pace, and texture. I mean, for me, it's really about jazz versus rock. You know, uh, yeah, there's a lot of classical influence in John Williams' music because he works with a symphony orchestra. But in some ways, I suspect that in his heart, he's a, he's a jazz cat, you know? <laughs> there's a great footage of him playing jazz piano in the Boston Pop special with Spielberg from like 1994 or so. And he's playing... Um, yeah, he's like 30. He looks like he's about 30 and he's playing like in, um, it's a TV show and he's like the jazz pianist. Ah, you know? yeah, it's um, Johnny Staccato. It's, yeah, that's called, it. Yeah, that's it. Music by Amor Bernstein, yeah. If you sit down and listen to the first minute of Miles Davis' Kind of Blue album, you can definitely hear, there's shades of the 
rebels running around inside the Death Star in the <laughs> writing there and the voicings with the sax and the winds, you know, the trumpet. I hear that influence. And to me, there's a sophistication to that kind of harmonic writing, like the chords that he picks and the way he deals with, with melody and counterpoint. You know, almost every other composer in film music today uses a rock vocabulary, which is sort of a left hand, right hand thing. The right hand is the melody and the left hand is chords. And that the orchestra, the strings are rhythm guitar, the percussion is a drummer and the horns are the melody, they're the lead singer. And it's a very predictable, very, there's no risk. Mm. And it's all like diatonic rock chords. Yeah. And most of the time it's in D minor, it seems like. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, and it's just, it's somewhere along the line, I somehow accidentally became, I guess I became kind of a snob. I don't know. Mm. I don't mean to be because I love movies and I love the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles are about as mainstream as you can get, but it really frustrates me that film music has sort of been reduced to what I feel is like a very simple vocabulary mm. that it, it, you might look at it like crayons. Like most film composers seem to have about eight crayons in their box of colors. And mm. John Williams has 128. But it's also the way that he he's able to accompany the, the movie and the story and the scenes uh, in a way that it enhances storytelling, it also enhances the drama, but at the same time retaining a, you know, a structure as a pure music piece. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, to be fair, most of the stuff he does in concert, he has rearranged for concert. Yeah. So a lot of people go, oh, it's so amazing how his music stands on its own. But that's because he's such a great arranger. Mm. That he can take themes that don't necessarily appear in the movie in that context and make an arrangement that works really well in concert. John Williams fans talk about the concert versions, you know, that fill up a lot of his soundtrack albums that don't really, I mean, Duel of the Fates was never supposed to be in The Phantom Menace the way it is on the album. Yeah, It was just because George Lucas fell in love with the concert version that it ended up getting tracked in the film the way it did. You know, the Raiders March never appeared in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Until the end credits. Except as the end credits, yeah. you know. But I'm thinking also about pieces like, you know, I'm telling this because I know you know your John Williams yeah. very well. And, uh, you know, a piece like the truck chase from Raiders. Right. Of course, it's a music written to 
to accompany a scene and it has right. some sudden dramatic turns and it changes key because of something happening on screen. But at the same time, I hear a sense of structure. There's tension and release, there's a musical arc, and you know, there's an intro, there's a development, and there's a, a coda. There was an interview with Lucas Kendall where he talked about that he views action sequences sort of as a ballet, like a dance. And yeah, I mean, music is all about, I mean, the other thing that John Williams is really, I think his music is really connected to is breathing. Mm. He said something very interesting. It may have been in an interview with Tavis Smiley when Force Awakens came out, where he spoke about the evolution of music from a choral beginning. You know, we sat around a campfire and sang, and then two people sang, and then the third person who couldn't sing hit a rock or hit a hit a hit a log with a rock, and then somebody else who couldn't sing discovered if they blew through a through a bamboo shoot, it could make a tone, and that music evolved from singing, and that has been very instructive to me because John Williams, like Bach. Bach did not think left hand, right hand. He did not think melody and chords. You know. Bach thought one melody and then a second melody that worked in sympathy with that melody. Contrapuntally, the music students would call it. And then that evolved into, you know, that. so it started out as a two-part invention, then a three-part invention and fugues, and then it, it evolved into orchestral music the way that we have it now. But it was all based on writing lines of music that worked together in sympathy. Mm -hmm rather than writing chords as blocks of sound. At Berkeley, we called it thinking horizontally rather than thinking vertically. Because when, when you look at it on the, on the page, you know, Bach wrote across and two lines going across. He didn't write, oh, this note will work with this chord. Yeah. Uh, it was all about the intervals, intervallic writing as well. And that comes from jazz as well. You know, uh, what's his name? Mingus, Billy Strayhorn. Yeah. You know, these guys thought about the intervals to get that jazz sound. It was uh, Conrad Pope who told me that John Williams was very inspired by Claude Thornhill, which is a jazz musician from the late 20s, early 30s, that wrote some jazz music, but influenced by the impressionistic uh, composer like Debussy. So he put the mm -hmm. French horn within a, a, a big band, which is a very unusual. Uh, right. And, and John Williams listened to that music when he was a kid, you know, so. That makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, in my own writing, I try to emulate what I like about John Williams' writing without hopefully 
what I guess I, the way I would explain it is I'm trying, I try to study his language and write in his language without just copying his sentences. Yeah. For me, it's the ultimate vocabulary for film music, more so than pretty much everybody else currently in vogue. <laughs> you know, in your score for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, you played a lot with different rhythms to enhance tension and action. Uh, but also put a lot of effort into the overall dramatic shape of the piece. So there is a sense of development and dramatic arc. So how difficult is to achieve that, uh, you know, as a composer in comparison to, let's say, what John Williams usually does to, with an action scene, like, you know, you know, the great action scenes from Raiders or Star Wars? One challenge with, current, with the current aesthetic in filmmaking is that not everybody agrees with me about John Williams and not everybody agrees with what we're talking about. A lot of people don't want that. A lot of people feel like that kind of scoring is old fashioned or corny. Uh, a lot of people feel like it's too emotional in the movie score, the documentary Quincy Jones says, you know, when he started out, when you saw something on screen, you heard it in the score and now they don't want that. Now, I worked with a filmmaker named Bob Kruskowski who made a film called The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot. And that came out earlier this year. And he's a, he's a young director. It was his first film. And he is the opposite. He wants that. He is tired of movies where the score sort of plays it cool and doesn't interact with the film and is a drone, is, mm. a, is a sort of tonal sound design rather than melody and music. And... He wanted the score to help anchor the film's emotional story. So, you know, there were action sequences in that film where, again, I, you know, I don't know if I consciously set out to, at this point, I don't know if I'm making a conscious decision to work in a John Williams style mm. versus another composer's style. I think that in the studying of film and film music that I've done and, and non-film music, I've come up with certain ways that I like to deal with situations that arise in films. Let's say like Rogue Nation, we made a conscious decision not to score the part of the car chase sequence where yeah. Cruz and Peg were in the car. Then when the car chase ends, they're like upside down in the BMW, I think it is. And a motorcyclist pulls up and then music comes in, hinting at the danger. And then the, the motorcyclist gets hit by... Jeremy Renner and Ving Rhames. There's a little bit of comedy. And then Tom gets on the motorcycle and takes off after 
Ilsa Faust. And that moment was where we decided to bring the score in and start scoring this action. Then I look at the sequence and you sort of, I just instinctively break it up into acts. So the first act is Tom, it's basically a straightaway in the Moroccan desert. And Tom is trying to get past, it's sort of like a video game. He's got to get past all the bad guys with the helmets to get to Ilsa. And, you know, he's catching up to them. He's kicking them off their bikes. Some of them are shooting at him. Some of them are getting hit by other cars. He's weaving in and out of trucks. And that's sort of the first act of this ballet sequence. They sort of go around this corner in the freeway that, that leads into mountains. And that corner is sort of a middle act. into the mountains and the mountains is the third act and he's going around corners and avoiding trucks the final act is you know he loses sight of ilsa then has then guns it to catch up to her he's gotten rid of all the obstacles in the way he comes around a corner she's standing in the middle of the street and he has to swerve out of the way so he doesn't run her over down into these beats mm -hmm. and so i go well from this point to this point is the first act of this cue and you know the the truck chase has a similar structure you know it starts out he's on the horse then he gets on the truck then he climbs over the truck gets in the front seat you know and, and you could break the thing down into beats into dramatic beats not musical beats yeah yeah and then it's about tension and release and it's back to the thing about breathing it's about sort of getting the audience sort of short of breath and then giving them a moment to catch their breath before you ratchet the tension up again yeah i i was looking at et the whole final sequence of et the, the final chase on the bikes it's all about that you know it's all about tension and release you know it's all about catching the beat in the right precise way and i in this sense i understood why 
John Williams wasn't able to fall in sync exactly the first time and then asked Spielberg to turn off the projector and just conduct it as a piece of music. Right. You know? Actually, I heard that the other way around, that Spielberg actually said, turn off the, right. the movie, do it right. from your heart, and I'll recut the movie. Because John actually, and I sort of, I wear it as a badge of honor. I never ask the filmmaker to change the movie to fit my music. Part of my job is to make the music fit the film. Yeah. And yeah, I, I have a feeling that if Spielberg hadn't suggested that, John would have made it work. He would have done whatever it took to make it work. Yeah. You know, he would never have said to Spielberg, can we, can I just do it? You know, yeah, yeah. he may have then eventually done it as a concert piece. And you'll notice, like, he almost never does the throne room in concert anywhere near as fast as he does it in the movie. Right. You know, it's always got a more march-like pace than a, a gallop. <laughs> <laughs> it's you kind know? of a, a pomp and circumstance to the piece. Yep. Uh, yeah, in concert. Yeah, and I think that uh, for John Williams' tempo, pace, uh, and rhythm, are all, it's all about those aspects in, when it comes to... Well, he said he starts with tempo. When he's actually writing the, the, the cue for the film, the first thing he does is figure out the tempo. And he's, I mean, that's what I do too. It seems like the best place to start for me. And one thing I don't like, you know, with computers now, you can sit down and put all your sync points in and it tells you a magic tempo that'll hit them all. But to me, that's backwards. I don't care about what, what tempo is going to hit all my beats. I find the tempo that feels right And then, I, and then I write music that can bob and weave the way it needs to to catch the, the hits. It has to feel organic. Right. So you'll notice, like in the motorcycle chase in Mission Impossible or, you know, scenes where they're running through London at the end of the movie, I'm adding measures of 3-4 or 7-8 or I'm switching to 5-4. I'm doing whatever it takes to catch the cuts that the director wants to catch without compromising what I think the tempo of the music should be. Yeah. And another thing that I noticed that is lacking probably in current film music, but John Williams does so much, is that he isn't afraid to use some old techniques such as Mickey Mousing or hit some things with some very specific musical accent. Uh, so you've studied his scores and know his music a lot. So, so how do you look at his way of solving problems such as, you know, how to enhance a certain action? And do you think he's deliberately writing in, in a way that is probably, you know, seen as a relic of the past in a way? Well, yeah, I mean, I, which I find frustrating. Yeah. There's a sequence in Mission Impossible where Tom Cruise is like chained to this pole. It's early in the film. Mm. And he get, ends up in this brawl with Rebecca Ferguson and a bunch of bad guys. And he sort of, he's got his back against the pole and he sort of shimmies up the pole, jumps off of it. He's got his hands handcuffed together and he's punching all these people. And at one point he sort of drop kicks somebody and falls on Rebecca's lap. And the action stops while they look at each other for a beat. They, and they share like a funny little glance. instinct was in that Spielbergian John Williams way also like Donner with Superman have a moment where there's a little bit of pizzicato strings or woodwinds or something that catch the, the moment 
before we go back into the action. And that contrast to me is interesting. Yeah. And if you, you can actually sync up the soundtrack CD to that scene. It's a track called Escape to Danger. And you can see how I did it. And the version they used in the film is a, is a music edit that the director made that has nothing to do with anything I wrote for that scene. Okay. You know, they tracked it, which is, you know, one thing I, I want to make clear, like when you're an actor on a set, you know, you, all you can do is give your performance and you may think a scene should be played straight. And the director will ask you to do a take where it's played funny and then use the funny take. And all you can do is say, look, I did a straight take. The director didn't want it. And I, I really subscribe to that in all aspects, that at the end of the day, it's the director's film. If I really want to have my way, I need to start directing movies. Yeah. And so what I do is I write the music that I think is right for the film, and then I let go of it, and I hand it off to the director and his people, and then it's their film to make. And they need to say, okay, look, I don't want that moment. This other music that you did does in this moment what I wanted to do. And they move it. And, you know, it, they did it in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. They did it a lot in Phantom Menace and Force Awakens. I mean, you have no idea how much they did it in Force Awakens. You know, it's about the director. At the end of the day, it's their film. So yeah. when I point this out about this aesthetic difference in that moment with Mission Impossible, I'm not trying to, it's not sour grapes. I'm not trying to vilify anyone. It was a difference of opinion about how the scene should be scored. Sure. And, you know, as long as I'm allowed to sort of make the music I want to make for the CD, I welcome the director doing what they want to do with the film, yeah. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Totally sense. Absolutely. I think that even nowadays for John Williams, that he's almost 90, he's totally respectful to the director. It's not like he's, you know, I'll do whatever I want. He's like, what is my best that I can do for your film? Even nowadays, he's thinking like that i think like all of us he wants to express himself as an artist i think that he unlike most composers he's very very selective in the films he scores um he does a film maybe once a year now it seems like it's every other year at the most to be honest and he's very selective because uh, another thing that sort of rubs me the wrong way about the film industry is this notion has arisen since the 80s that if you're not doing 10 films a year, you're not a successful film composer. And, you know, I'm, all, I'm very grateful to the people who have said nice things about my work on Mission Impossible and nice things about my work on Reacher and Wave the Gun and the score I just did for Hitler and Bigfoot. But it's sort of backward. I get these sort of backhanded compliments where people say, well, these scores are so great. Why is this guy not doing every movie ever made? <laughs> like somehow I, I screwed up somehow that I'm not scoring 10 movies a year. Well, you know, look, I would love to work more and who wouldn't. But by the same token, I don't know how somebody writes 10 scores a year for 10 years and has anything to say, anything left in them to give, you know. I yeah, think you, you know probably the answer to this question, you know. Well, again, a lot of things in Hollywood are backwards, which is that in a lot of ways agents and producers and middlemen are running the business in a backwards way. And they're saying, No, I'm not in the business of getting you jobs for you to turn them down. If I get you a job, you take it. You don't have to write it, get somebody else to write it. I mean, do the math. There's no way. A yeah. lot of these composers are writing their own scores, you know. There are there are still a few of us left who do write every write every note ourselves. Yeah. You know. Um Michael Giacchino, 
is very dedicated to what he does, you know? Yes. And I have it on good authority. Like, you know, as many films as he's doing, he's doing all the heavy lifting himself. You know, he's doing the writing. There's not a lot of composers you can say that about in our current aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, totally. But do you think that probably versatility is uh, key to this? Because I think that if you look at the career of John Williams, of course, he's celebrated for his great successes like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, and Jurassic Park, and so on. But over the course of his career, he showed an immense versatility. I mean, he can be at home writing Americana. Uh, he can write avant-garde scores, like images. If we go back to, to the early part of his career, we find very strange things, actually, in terms of yeah, style. I mean, I think, I think it's a strange... There's versatility to a degree, but there's also pigeonholing, I guess. I would be willing to bet that if you went out on the street and just asked random people, they would not actually say that John Williams is very versatile. They would say, and you meet those people who think, oh, all of his themes sound the same. They're all the perfect fit. You know, and I've taught classes where students have been like, is it true John Williams tried to copyright the perfect fit? And I'm like, no, he didn't try to, you know, don't be ridiculous, you know. And they would argue that other composers are very versatile. And I would argue that they're not, or their versatility is different. Now, mm -hmm. like a fundamental difference, not only is there the difference in rock music versus jazz in terms of the vocabulary that John Williams uses, another difference, in my opinion, is that a lot, a lot of composers have substituted production for composing. They solve the problems of scoring a film with production skills rather than composing skills. So in order to create a feeling of intensity they use epic drums and a choir no matter what the film is no matter what the situation eventually epic drums and a choir come into it because that's how they solve the problem that's how they choose to solve problems as opposed to like trying to come up with a theme and then arrange it in different ways to create that intensity now there are multiple ways to score every movie there's no one right way to score any movie There are movies that have come out with two different scores, and both of them are valid. Legend is, is an example. Now, maybe you don't like Tangerine Dream. Maybe you prefer Jerry Goldsmith. Maybe, as an artist, one finds it insulting that you know Goldsmith was replaced by a New Age band. But it doesn't mean one is valid and one is not. You know, And Vangelis' score to Blade Runner is just as valid as Goldsmith's score to Alien or Williams' score to E.T. And... You know, what Junkie did for Mad Max Fury Road was like a perfect match, you know. And I'm not sure, to be honest, what someone like John Williams would bring to that film that uh, if there's any one thing that I would guess John Williams would not be so strong at would be genuine rock and roll. You know, even if you listen to like the rock tracks he did for Superman the movie, Yeah, and I don't mean this in any offensive way, but they're they're sort of funky '70s rock. Yeah, but I don't picture him being able to being. Uh, honestly, I don't think he's interested in doing it. Like a yeah. score like Sherlock Holmes, or a score like uh, Armageddon, or a score like the Transformers scores. You know, mm -hmm. where it's sort of based more on diatonic rock. I I don't know if he's ter or or even the Matrix. You know. I just don't know how interested he'd even be in doing that. I guess if Spielberg made it, he would be. But I mean, yeah. perhaps it's telling yeah. to a certain degree that he's not involved in West Side Story at all. Yes, 
Absolutely. No, I think that he's very selective. I mean, he doesn't have to demonstrate his own versatility. I was more thinking about, uh, you know, the sides of John Williams that are worth to explore, even for us as a listener or as a fans. You know, I was mm-hmm. I was listening the other day to War of the Words. There's such a, a density in the writing. You know, it's uh, very dark. It's very uncompromised in the way that he eschew lyricism all the time. You know, he just goes straight to very Stravinsky-like writing or even Bartok, very dissonant. that more people should know that side of John Williams, which is very expert in uh, dealing with uh, modern techniques of orchestral writing. So it's very interesting to delve into that because, as you were saying before, many people would think that John Williams only does the, the fanfares and uh, the marches, and uh, and he's good at that, of course, but he's right. a lot more. A lot more. You know, I mean, within the context of the Star Wars vocabulary, Revenge of the Sith has an empire. Both of those scores have a lot of like very dark, non-lyrical decisions he made as a composer. I mean, I come back to a friend of mine who I was talking to once and he was saying how, you know, oh, Chamber of Secrets, like the most phoned in score ever written. <laughs> and I was like, you're crazy. This guy's not a musician. You know, he's just a movie fan. But I was like, you're cra- what are you talking about? Like, OK, I guess you could argue that. And to be totally fair, I mean, it wasn't John Williams at the helm 100 percent. It was a, it was yeah. a collaboration, which yes. this guy didn't the person I was talking to didn't didn't know. But even then, like John Williams' quote, phoning it in, is still, it's it's writing at a level of sophistication that, to be totally honest, I think it goes over a lot of people's heads. Yes.
I think even like listen to Silvestri and the kind of lyricism he's able to get out of Gump and Castaway, and of course Back to the Future, and then compare that to the relatively rock and roll harmonically based theme for the Avengers. You know, the Avengers theme, there's not a lot of notes in it, and the chords are very much out of rock and roll, as opposed to some of his other work where it wasn't. Now, I don't think that's a case of Silvestri losing his ability to be more sophisticated. That's a case of the tastes of the filmmakers. They want something less sophisticated. So versatility, in a way, is a... In a way, versatility is a career liability now. Uh, well, of course, I would also argue that being a film composer is a career liability if you want to score movies. <laughs> you know, I have met with a lot of directors who have approached me about scoring the film and then end up hiring rock bands that they want to work with. And, and it's been because they sort of, they, they, I think the film becomes an opportunity for them to rub elbows with some of their rock heroes. And they, they use the opportunity to do that rather than to maybe necessarily get somebody who knows film scoring as a craft to contribute to their film. Yeah, I guess it would be like when Hitchcock got Salvador Dali to do production design for Spellbound. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'd like to, to touch a little bit upon the time that you dedicate to the workshop, to talking to students yeah. and music schools. So how did that came to you? I mean... Uh, was it a necessity for you to, to pay back some of the things that you learn to younger students and to people who are, you know, to, who want to become the future film composers? Or is it something that is, you always like to do, you know, teaching and, and so on? I had great teachers growing up, a, a, a wide variety of great teachers, and they have of different schools of thought, you know, and... I would get these little nuggets of inspiration from them that would sort of carry me through to my next step in evolving as a composer. I guess I just always thought that uh, it would be nice to return the favor if I could. It always excited me when somebody who had been out there really doing it would come to Berkeley, for example, and, and speak about their experience. So my wife is a teacher. She teaches English at college here in Los Angeles. and. One of her co-workers uh, was married to a musician who taught music at a college in L.A. And so I went and spoke at his class. And that was the first time I really spoke in class. And I found it really rewarding. And I continued to do it whenever I had the chance. And then, funnily enough, the Hollywood Music Workshop, I got that job through Conrad. I had studied, you know, through various networks in L.A. We, were, we, we managed to get a hold of some things that were probably were never meant to see conductor scores of different scores. And so I'd seen some of the scores that Conrad had worked on. And after Mission came out, I finally sort of had enough nerve to just sort of cold call Conrad on Facebook, contact him out of the blue and invite him to lunch. And he was gracious enough to accept. And I sort of nerded out with him the way I've been nerding out with you with all these observations about Williams and music and the state of the film industry. Uh, uh, from a musician, musician's point of view. And he called me a few months later and was like, you know, I work at this workshop in Vienna and we are changing up the faculty and we want to get some new blood in. And we were wondering if you wanted to teach composing. And, you know, before he'd finished the sentence, I was like, yes, when do I go? When do I start? You know, <laughs> very excited to do it. So 
uh, I have Conrad to thank really for the for that great opportunity. And that led to other opportunities working with a great composer named Kubale Uner, who runs a film music program in Chicago. Other opportunities. I've done some master classes in, at film, film Music Cologne. I did one. Some other film festivals across the across the world. And you, again, Conrad has a great saying. He learned from one of his teachers, which is like, I think for a balanced life, musicians should play a little, write a little, and teach a little. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a nice philosophy. And uh, I try to sort of maintain that. Yeah, that's that's a that's a nice way to put it. And I think that it, it links to where we were at the beginning of our discussion. I mean, uh, since the music of John Williams has inspired at least two or three generations. Of, of young musician and people to study music and go for a career in music. So what do you think John's legacy will be in this sense and what he is leaving specifically to the film music community? I think that Korngold and Max Steiner were sort of the Haydn and Bach types of the film music industry. And Williams is sort of the Mozart. Like, we'll never have another John Williams. We'll never have another film composer who did what he did. There will be other film composers who will be famous. There will be other film composers who will inspire people. Certainly Zimmer is a composer that has inspired countless others to get in the business. And he certainly has enough clout to, you know, play guitar at Coachella. Mm -hmm. But for me, you know, after Mozart, we had Beethoven, who was awesome. But we never really ever had another Mozart. And I think similarly, I mean, the legacy of the Star Wars saga and the legacy of his work with Spielberg, I think, are the two principal contributions in his lifetime that will last a long time. Yes. I think um, that, you know, even even Hitchcock, who is probably the only filmmaker to approach Spielberg's ubiquitous yeah. career, even Hitchcock had to, you know, couldn't work with the same composer forever. He would get frustrated or burned out or the relationship would disintegrate. Williams and Spielberg have managed to. The only reason they haven't done every film together has either been scheduling or health. Yes. Or in the in the one case of Color Purple, the fact that Spielberg was hired by the composer to score the movie or to direct the movie, you know, Quincy <laughs> yes. Jones was scoring that movie before Spielberg was yeah. hired. Yeah. From the outside looking it in, it's looking in. It seems to me that Spielberg would always Williams would always be his first choice, and then when when that's not an option, he finds Another a substitute. One. Yeah. So that legacy of their relationship and their collaboration is unique in film. I can't think of any other pair that did as many films and worked together as long as yeah, they did. Yeah, it's now more than 40, 40 years. I mean, 45 years. It's a, Yeah, I mean, when was Sugarland? 72, 73? 73, I think. So 46 years. Yeah, a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. And then I think the Star Wars saga, that legacy, you know, that's his ring cycle. That's his Nutcracker suite. You know, that's his um, magic flute. And yeah, and I think it'll be something that will it'll last. Okay. I don't know. I mean, he'll he's the first to admit he's like, you know, people will say, well, what, out of all the music you've done, what's your favorite? And he goes, well, I don't really have a favorite. Although I suppose if you look at the pieces I come back to for my concerts, that says something, you know, you may not hear 
as good as it is, you may not hear much about War of the Worlds 40 years from now or Rosewood or Stepmom mm-hmm. or Sleepers. But people will talk about Schindler and Jaws for a long time, you know. Yeah, but don't you think that we uh, as admirers and fans should shed a brighter light on the lesser known scores of John Williams? I mean, of course, everybody loves Raiders and Superman and Star Wars and so on. So, uh, and now all these works are becoming repertoire. So, do you think it's now time to also discover the many different sides of John Williams and let more people know about them? Any work of any artist is just one point on a continuum of their life. So, you know, for every buddy who thinks, you know, she loves you, yeah, 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 was all that the Beatles were about, you know, they've never heard, you know, the big medley at the end of Abbey Road. You know what I mean? For everybody who thinks that the Beach Boys were just songs about surfing, well, they haven't listened to Smile, the unreleased album that finally came out 40 years after it was recorded, you know? You know, I thought Led Zeppelin was a bunch of dumb cock rock. And then I heard Houses of the Holy with all that acoustic music and thought, oh, wait a second. You know what I mean? There's another layer to this band. And then I heard Led Zeppelin three with all the folk, acoustic English folk on it and thought, well, it's a band with more dimension than I thought. I, you know, any artist has, has their hits and then you, you sort of dig a little deeper and you find some gems that people don't know about that people aren't as familiar with. You know, the reverse to me is like, if I could have, if I could have written the reverse and that was all I ever did in my career, I'd be ecstatic. You know, to then and, and for the Reavers to kind of be a, a sort of, oh, I never heard this before in a career that includes Harry Potter, Indiana Jones, <laughs> Star Wars, Superman, Close Encounters, Jaws. You know, it's like, wow. John will end up um, the, the Star Wars saga. Do you have any ideas or expectation about that? Not really, to be honest. Filmmaking in the digital era has become very fluid and it can be exhausting. Uh, a lot of directors now want 15 versions of every cue. Some of this is a result of a, of a, of a sort of business model that has been created where you have teams of composers 30 composers working on a film. And so you can make overnight, you can have 15 different composers each score a scene and then provide a director with 15 alternatives for a scene. And when you're a composer like John Williams, who writes everything himself for symphony orchestra, you can't do that. 
when you don't do mock-ups. Yeah. I can imagine a situation where a director wants more options than Williams is able to create. And I can imagine that being frustrating for everyone involved. Now, I don't know for sure that this happened and I don't want to, again, name names. I'm really not trying to vilify anybody. No, no, it's okay. But, but the business has changed since the day where you could spot a movie and then six weeks later, you play some stuff on the piano and then six weeks after that, you'd meet at Abbey Road and record the score and the director would give notes. You know, now directors want mock-ups, they want options. And that's sort of antithetical to the way John Williams was trained. Yeah, yeah. Making changes at a session is one thing. And occasionally, you know, really throwing it out and starting all over, which I believe is kind of what happened with Catch Me If You Can. The opening title was just one cue that Williams had written as a set piece. And Spielberg loved it. And John was sort of surprised how much Spielberg loved it and thought, well, if you love this, I'd love to do the whole movie this way. Yeah. And so they sort of went back to the drawing board and rescored the film with that jazzy sort of approach. I didn't know that. I suspect that episode seven was a very uh, tiring process for John Williams in the sense that it was a lot of work, I think, to get to the finished product. And I mean, you can listen to the soundtrack album and you can listen to the Oscar album and you there are big differences in, in, in things that indicate there was a lot of rewriting being done, which knowing how John Williams works, I can only imagine was a lot to do. By all accounts, episode eight was much more straightforward. And whether that was a reaction to episode seven, I don't know. But I mean, the music editor for episode eight said in the press, I made a temp score and then gave it to John Williams and he gave us back the score to the film, which sounds to me very different from what the process on seven seemed to be based on those two albums. So given the fact that nine is the same team that made seven, I just don't know how much energy the composer has to devote to a system that might need, to a process that might need a lot of options. I just don't know. I, you know, again, I'm not trying to vilify anybody. I'm not trying to speak ill of anyone, but the business has changed and, you know. Absolutely, yes. And I think also that's because John Williams probably didn't do a lot of movies in the last 10 years. They were limited to, you know, Spielberg and Star Wars, basically. He comes from an age of filmmaking where it was expected and welcomed that he would bring something to the table and it would be aptly considered and judged and valued appropriately. And I think that there is a very large contingent of filmmaking in Hollywood that is not interested, in my opinion, as a composer. Just shut up and do what I tell you. To a certain degree, that masks an insecurity on the part of filmmakers. A lot of filmmakers sort of need to be the smartest person in the room. And, you know, they don't want some musical snob telling them that their musical idea is, you know, not right. 
and I'm speaking not about Williams here, but about the other side of the coin, which is the filmmaking community. You know, I I suspect there are filmmakers. It's the same thing with striping, where you record this the strings on Monday and the brass on Tuesday and the winds on Wednesday, if you even use winds. Directors have gotten used to not only have they gotten used to having all these options, they've gotten used to being able to micromanage and have control over the music in a very detailed way. And when you are a composer who doesn't do mock-ups and uh, doesn't sit in the booth, you conduct the score. You're not in the booth with the director. And you don't record things separately. You record them together as a band. And you don't work to a click so that everything is not on a grid. I think there are a lot of directors who that scares the hell out of them because they don't know how to deal with losing that much control over the music in their movie. So it's probably a mutual thing that Williams is, is so uh, seems to be artistically fulfilled working with Spielberg and working on Star Wars and not so worried about scoring The Revenant, you know what I mean, for example. Yes. I'm just using that as an example, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. or Dunkirk. Yeah, yes, I guess that's probably, you know, he, he's at a point of his career, of course, where he's probably happy with what he does and what he did and so he probably he's very happy to have the opportunity to you know even to write music for himself well, I, mean, or I think he's music. a person you know like he's a person like all of us i mean are you happy right now like are you happy to just say okay i've done enough i quit <laughs> i don't think he no he i don't think he wants to quit i don't or... think he's bitter and jaded you know what i mean but i, I and i think that he probably has a sense of what my guess would be that he has a sense of this job is going to be a nightmare and, and therefore I'm going to say no. And this job sounds like it'll be something that'll be fulfilling for me, so I'll say yes. Yes, absolutely makes sense. You know? um, and that's a tough thing. Like, I've reached a point, too, where I'm like, that sounds like a nightmare. I think I'll pass, you know, <laughs> which is hard. And it's kind of antithetical to the mainstream Hollywood composer who is like, well, I don't care what it is. I'll do it. I don't have to write it. I can get some kids from Berkeley to write it, or SC, or, you know. Even the field has become much more competitive than probably was. You know, Hollywood has reached a point where the big studios, Sony, Disney, Fox, Universal, Warner Brothers, these studios would rather spend $300 million on one movie that makes a billion dollars than to spend $10 million each on 30 movies that each make $100 million. So even though they may, you know, because that billion dollar box office finish line is is more important to them. Well, when you're making one tenth of the movies that you made 20 years ago, that means there's one tenth the jobs. So those those six studios are making, say, let's say it's five, well, it's five we'll say six studios and let's say they each make four movie big movies a year, one each quarter, a big fall, a big summer, a big Oscar, a big winter and a big fall. Six times four is 24. Well, that's, so that's 24 movies. Well, this behemoth is probably getting 15 of those movies yeah. right off the bat, you know? Yeah. That leaves nine movies for everyone else in the business, <laughs> you know? But didn't then, the, you know, the streaming industry, Netflix, and all that change something for composers as well? Yes, but those movies, so many of those movies are, there's no money for an orchestra. Hmm. You know, there's no dis theatrical distribution, so it's not a high-profile job. And then you end up getting a review where the critic says, why isn't he doing big movies? He's only doing this Netflix straight-to-video movie. You know what I mean? And then you look like a loser. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, 
So those nine movies that are left, you know, well, you know, just Flat's going to do two or three of them. Michael's going to do two or three of them, which is fine. So now let's say they each do two. That leaves five. So you got Al. John Williams might do one. You know, uh, Chris Beck, Chris Lannerts, yeah, and Marco. Marco Beltran. So there you go. And that's all the studio movies for 2020. You know, but that's the business. You know what I mean? And you're right, because on another level, there's tons of movies. And if, and sort of what I've done is I've I've figured out a I've got a business model, if you will, that allows me to score a movie like The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot. And I can I live the life I want to live and I work on the movies I want to work on. And obviously, look, if Marvel comes knocking at my door and wants me to score a movie for them, I would love to. I want to play in the World Series, you know what I mean? I don't want to just play in the, quote, minor leagues. The other thing is what's what, you know, is that none of this is a civil right. None of this is a yeah. is a it, it's it's art. And essentially, it's a hobby that I've managed to get paid for. So I'm I count my blessings every day that I'm able to do any of this at all. And that you even give a shit about having a conversation with me about <laughs> any of this is something that I never expected in my life. You know what I mean? And I'm grateful for all of it. So all of this, again, I don't want to, I'm not bitter, it's not sour grapes, but it is the reality of working in, in the business, you know? Want to take too much of your time you're being already very generous with me so uh, I, i don't want to bore your listeners <laughs> no. so. I, i really thank you for for your time and thank you for your generosity and i hope to talk with you again soon me too man thanks so much Mauricio. thanks to joe kramer for his time and generosity visit his website joekramer.com to know more about his career and upcoming projects Joseph scores for Jack Reacher, Mission Impossible Rock Nation, and The Man Who Killed Hitler and Then the Bigfoot are available on lalalandrecords.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time for a new Legacy Conversation. This audio feature is produced by Maurizio Caschetto for the legacyofjohnwilliams.com.